Welcome to the Most Hated Effort, episode number five. What is a healthy money relationship? Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated Effort podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. This was a great episode. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation with Ed as much as I did. We really dive into the unconscious mind and the money beliefs that it, it holds. And he helps us try to make sense of our past money stories and scripts so that we can gain control of the whole framework of our money making decisions. We look at how to gain control of our thoughts, emotions, and beliefs around money, how to recognize shame, envy, and jealousy around money. And an interesting thing we talk about is how we can use empathy to succeed with our money in life. Ed also talks about two major issues where he sees that risk around money. And finally, Ed even talks about how he he uses money as nutrition in his life. I hope you enjoy this and have a great day. All right. Welcome to the Most Hated F Word podcast, where it's our job to focus on the intersection between our minds, our money, and what matters most. And today, I'm extremely excited to have on our show, Ed Coombs who's a financial therapist in Carolina. I'm going to read a little background about Ed, and then I'll let him fill in any any gaps that I miss. I think this is going to be a wonderful conversation because it's two taboo subjects, really, therapy and money, and I think it's great. As a marriage and money therapist, Ed helps couples to really listen and talk with each other about the role and use of money in and through their marriage. Ed started his career as a professional firefighter and eventually transitioned from working as a firefighter to working at Vanguard Mutual Funds, where he saw the importance of financial planning and most likely the value of low-cost index. This led Ed to earn his CFP designation, which is a certified financial planning designation. And after closely watching both personal and professionally how people interact with money, Ed identified a huge need to bring the understanding of counseling and psychology to financial planning. This insight changed the course of his work and led him to become a marriage counselor. He now has a master's in counseling, an MBA in finance, and according to LinkedIn, you will be completing a PhD in philosophy. Is that correct? A PhD in financial planning. Oh, financial planning. Okay, well, even better. Ed now enjoys helping couples find common ground in their finances so they can flourish in life together. You can learn more about Ed at, and we'll include this in the show notes, but at www marriageandmoneymatters.com. So Ed, I don't call this show the most hated F word for no reason. On average, our finances freak us out. And when you add that into marriages, I like your equation. I believe it was like marriage money equals disaster. I'm paraphrasing not 100%, but welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, it's it's incredible and almost a little embarrassing to realize even it listening to my bio and some of the stuff that you picked up on me, how much I've grown and changed since some of that stuff has been pushed out. (laughs) So I'm going to just update and I'll ask you to update the show notes and to say the new company name is called Healthy Love and Money. At that place, people can learn about my counseling practice, but also some online courses that I'm developing. Okay. And so I have a new exciting course that's going to be launched here very shortly, dealing with people's family tree and how their family history shapes their understanding of money. So you can find out more about me there at Healthy Love and Money. In this digital age, it's easy to get outdated and not not update. So yeah, I think that you know even maybe a great part of this whole conversation that we're talking about here in financial therapy is we grow up with a set of money beliefs and they work within the the environment and the family that we're growing up in. Now some of those money beliefs may not even make sense to us when we're a kid and we may be questioning our parents, but we really don't have much sense of how things could be different. But what I know is as we become adults and move through our adult life, our environment and our jobs change. And so what we need to do with our money changes as well. And so there's kind of this need to continually reevaluate and update our money beliefs Mm -hmm. to who we are and where we're at now. So 
I, I'm going to stop there. You mentioned money beliefs. I have a CFP myself. I've done quite a bit of training and courses and work in financial planning. And this word has never, ever come up in all the years until recently. So why don't we just talk a little bit more about money beliefs and something that I continuously see people stressed out about is they say they know they need to save more. They know they need to pay off their credit cards. They know they need to do all these things, but I just can't do them. And I'm really starting to see it comes down to these money beliefs that we just completely unconscious about. So can you just explain to listeners a little bit more about what money beliefs are and how they're impacting us today? Yeah, so I think that money beliefs are are mostly inherited through lived experience, right? They're the things that we hear our parents saying about money that we don't even really realize they're saying. Like, you know, we just never have enough money. Or what I'm thinking of something my wife said even today, it was like, this is just my luck, mm. right? Yeah. And even that in the context of something happening with your work, it's representative of this like feeling of disempowered or overwhelmed here I'm trying to work and I can't work. Mm -hmm. And so money beliefs are usually, I think, learned much like walking. It happens without you ever remembering. And so it can take some internal reflective work to start to uncover these money beliefs that have developed over time. We talked just before the show started about the Klontz's work. And I think that they do a good job of helping people start to identify common money beliefs. Mm -hmm money worship and money avoidance, uh, money hypervigilance. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times our money beliefs about not being able to do certain things, in my estimate, are have some element of shame tied with them. And what I mean by that is in shame, we feel like we're not enough. And that may not always be self-evident. Like we may have some viewers being saying, no, no I, I feel like I'm enough. Mm -hmm. And because the nature of shame is tricky. Yeah. And can be sneaky, we don't always know that we have some shame around what we're doing or not doing with our money. As humans, we're wired to try to engage in our social environment. So there's a lot of positive attributes to that, right? That's how we form our family relationships and maintain them. That's why we fall in love. It's why we form friendships and communities. We're wired to form relationships. And such an important part of forming relationships is understanding the cultural values and norms. Mm -hmm. And so when we have lots of financial norms that say, you know, you shouldn't have too much debt and you should save a certain amount and you should get to retirement. But these are what I call macro level messages. They're general norms without any specific direction on how to accomplish it. Right. And so we get into really having to navigate through ultimately financial, different financial belief systems that are not well organized or talk or talked about mm -hmm. right there's mounds of scholarship on different religious belief systems and how people understand themselves as christians or muslim or jewish or buddhist and then within each of those broad traditions there's a lot of nuance to the different expressions i don't know that we have that as well thought out yeah i mean in the financial world you know, people say, I'm a capitalist, you know, okay, well, what does it mean for you to be a capitalist? Mm -hmm. I'm more of a socialist. Well, okay, well, what does that mean for you to be more of a socialist? I'm mm -hmm. more democratic in my thought, you know, balanced. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, what does that mean? Where does that come from? And so we have, we're, we're, our belief systems are this composite mix, typically of family experience and beliefs with broader cultural beliefs. Right. Two things I, I want to talk about. One is when you mentioned about the shame and then also this, like the overall system isn't really well defined in terms of money. Like what is it, what role does it play in our lives? And right. like you're saying with these cultural norms, for example, in Canada, um, our, our, I guess, quote unquote, retirement age is 65. So uh -huh. this system is almost, well, you work till you're 65 and you make money and you try to save and this is what you do. So that's one thing. But when you mentioned shame, something else that I see often, and I want to get your comment on this, is buying a new car or house, but then looking at the underlying issues. And one example I'm thinking in my head is envy. 
So envy is something that a lot of people end up having for whatever past reasons. But I read a research article that talked about buying cars related to envy. So it gave an example, this person's car was not in the best shape. And oh, all these other cars are so beautiful. And I'm going to feel so much better when I buy that new car. And you buy that new car and then a little dent happens. You got to buy new, another new car because we're not looking at the underlying, potentially the underlying issue of envy. So I guess just from your perspective, how does someone determine, if possible, if there's an underlying motive like shame or envy that's causing this financial decision to present, or if that's a valid financial decision to make? Yeah, I think that's a huge can of worms. (laughs) So significant to work through because from a psychological perspective, we all have the potential for envy. Mm -hmm. And so trying to even de-shame the fact that you have envy, right? Because culturally, we're, most of us are told that having greed or having envy or being jealous is bad. Mm -hmm. Well, okay. Well, then if it's bad, then I have to disown it. I have to try to disconnect from the fact that I have these feelings. Right. As a therapist, I flip the paradigm and say, well, let's talk about these feelings and why do you have them and why are they there and what messages or signals are they trying to send to you about what's happening inside of your world? Because envy, jealousy, greed, you know, there's, if we went into the literature, we could get into really nuanced details, but for our conversation, let's just call them all three about the same stripe. Yeah. yeah. And they're awake on the positive side, they can move us towards aspirational ideals, right. right? They can say, wow, this person is living this way. I would like to live this way. And it can help them change the way that they live their lives. Yeah. Right. So on the positive side, it can help us move towards aspirational motivation. Mm-hmm. The, the challenge is when there's a lot of internal shame for ourselves that envy, greed, and jealousy that drive us to buy the nicer new car mm-hmm. ends up paradoxically leaving us still with shame. Right, right. Because we haven't addressed the underlying issue of I'm unworthy, I'm not good enough. Mm-hmm. Right? If someone has an internal sense that I'm good, I'm valuable, people want to be connected to me, and I can connect to people consistently, then when they have jealousy, envy, or greed, they can use those as a tool for aspiration and growth without it needing to be a, um, an, a balm to the internal shame that they're feeling. I was just going to say, I appreciate that answer because just with doing a lot of the clients work and dipping my toes in this different thought process, someone came up to me and said like, you know what? Cause I shared the money scripts from the clients. He's like, you know, what? like my dad really didn't give me much compassion growing up, but he just bought me things, bought me things, bought me things. So now I'm just doing this all over to my kids and I feel terrible about it. And I mean, I didn't know a good answer at all. He's like, I don't know how to get rid of this, this feeling, but I think just how you framed it there is recognizing it and even using that as an inspiration towards something that you actually aspire to. Yeah. And I think that you're really hitting on such an important thing. And I think this is the conversation between the field of financial therapy and and therapy in general. Financial planners have a great opportunity to come in contact with these types of things in the course of their work. Mm-hmm. But for most financial planners, they don't have the skill or training to, to take a client on a therapeutic process to yeah. resolve the underlying shame. Mm-hmm. But you, in the virtue of what you did with him, gave him language to something that he may have only kind of just felt. Mm-hmm. And maybe known at some level, but hadn't been able to put words to yet. Right. And even if he could previously put words to it, it now likely feels validated. Like this is a real experience for me. And this is where I think speaking on this issue of shame too can feel really bad is you could tell your friends going out, well, my dad would just buy me things. And a lot of people would experience you as being ungrateful. Yeah. I mean, I would have loved if my dad would have bought me, you know, I'm making this up, but a BMW, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you know, or, you know, the next gaming system or more Nike Air Jordans. Mm-hmm. Right? And that speaks more to the respondent's own feeling of inadequacy and not having enough and, and their own jealousy and envy about the material status of this person. When what they're really saying is what I needed was relationship mm-hmm. with my dad. Mm-hmm. My dad didn't know how to relate with me as a child. And so he related through a consumer process. 
Mm-hmm. And that's part of the macro culture that most of us in the Western world live through is we solve our problems through materialistic consumption. Mm-hmm. This is where shopping addictions start to show up. Yeah. The field of psychology is that humans first are wired for relational connection, feeling seen, known, heard, understood. Those are our core needs mm-hmm. that cannot be met by another bottle of wine, a new pair of sneakers, you know, a fancier dinner. All of those things are nice. And I'm, I'm with you. I'm not against having or enjoying those things. But if you're not feeling relationally connected to all of those things will only be filling a void. And I can assume it's only a matter of time before the, the void gets so big that it becomes crippling. It's where we start to see either excessive accumulation of wealth with fear, which is what happens in the field of financial planning a lot is we come across a lot of wealthy clients that are still terrified of not being wealthy enough mm-hmm. or losing their wealth or outside of wealth management. We see it in families that have exceptional levels of debt that are beyond man- manageable. And as a therapist, there's often a lot of relational deficits. They haven't learned how to be with each other relationally. And so they don't know how to talk about their finances. They're not able to engage in productive conversations about changing spending patterns. Just on that part there, I, I actually would like to jump into financial therapy with couples. Yeah. I know that's your specialty. I, I had a podcast a couple uh, days ago with a, he specialized in credit and uh, in Canada here. And I, I really appreciated his conversation because he's like known in Canada as this credit guy. Everyone looks up to him. He's an author, speaker. And we yeah. started to talk about money, money stories and growing up, what kind of money stories we had. And he said when he got married, being married was his biggest financial lesson. Said that he was always thinking like, I'm right. I'm the financial guru. I, I know what I'm talking about. How do you know? And he said once he like totally stopped doing that, he's like through therapy, he brought up, he's like therapy was the only way that has helped me. It's a lot more collaborative, but he's for sure first to point out that we're not perfect. And then like, I look at my relationship with my wife. We always joke around. I, I wrote a blog post about when I first heard about how her and her dad went and bought a car. They just went to this car show. They Neither of them knew how to drive a standard. So they just looked at the car and they're like, okay, let's get that one. We don't know how to drive a standard. We'll figure it out. They bought it, didn't test drive it and went home. Just like a casual afternoon of shopping. Whereas my money store was like, you know, research, make sure you figure it out. And, and I'm like, Really? And so it's fascinating to me that we have to merge two people's lives. And then you throw in this underlying context of money, which really yeah. is a function. Like we pay our mortgage. We have all these monies intertwined in everything and then communication. So why don't you share with us what is financial therapy and how I feel like maybe I'm not, maybe I'm overstating this, but how every couple could benefit from it. <laughs> Oh, well, uh, you're preaching to the choir as far as I'm concerned that every couple could benefit from it. And I think your setup is is so beautiful. And you know, that comment I was making earlier about feeling seen, heard, known, yeah. and understood. I'm having that with you right now, right? And I'm feeling this sense of connection with you. And like, man, I really like this guy. John, we've only known each other for 20 minutes now. Yeah. But it's like, you get my internal world. And it feels great. I feel as relaxed as I ever do. And so this is what I'm talking about in connection is because you've had your own journey and your own experiences that it makes it easy for us to be connected. Mm-hmm. So now when we're talking about what you just shared, I want to echo this credit counselor guru and say, I'm right there with them. I have my own, the same story. You could change a few of the details, but the same process yeah. is there. I was the expert in my relationship when I got married to my wife and it's, what initially attracted her to me is she was in dental school and I was a firefighter and she knew I was making a modest income, but I was still like socking away for retirement and didn't have any debt. And she had mounds of debt for dental school. I mean, it was appropriate for yeah. what she was doing, you know, and we got started and, you know, our first year of marriage, we, we had put up the big white board and organized our debts and figure out which one we're going to pay off. And, you know, man, we were gangbusters and that worked pretty well. But as her income went up and I made some changes and there were some things that just weren't happening in our conversation. I would get stuck. And then I would start getting frustrated. And then, you know, she would not intentionally, but be like, Oh, well, I don't think that goal is important. And so we started getting more and more out of alignment on what to do with money and how to use it. 
And I was, and this is a trap for many financial professionals where they start to feel even more shame because I'm the expert. I'm supposed to know how to fix this and yeah. do this. And there's this expectation that people come to me for, to solve their problems. Why is my partner not doing that with me? Yeah. And it's because our partners have an inherently different relationship with us than customer. And so this is something I, I have clients that come in my door that are finance professionals. And man, it is, they're some of my favorite clients and the hardest clients to work with because them letting go of that, I, I've got to be right. I know this is a huge deal. So I'm sorry, I lost a little bit of track of your initial question, but oh, so what is financial therapy? Yeah. So all of this long-windedness to say, Therapy in general, right, is about helping people understand the relationship between their thoughts, their emotions, their behaviors, and their relationship dynamics, right? Mm-hmm. Trying to keep it at the simplest way is my thinking, my emotions, and my behaviors are all interconnected with each other. And those all play out within a relationship with myself and with other people. And so when we're starting to feel distress about having ruminating ruminating thoughts, like I'll never be able to pay this bill. I'll never be able to get caught up. I can't do this. Behaviorally, I'm avoiding paying my bills. I can't stand to look at the statements that are coming in the door. The emotions are, I'm sad all the time, or I'm scared, or I'm anxious, or I'm angry, or at that deeper level, there's shame, right? Those are all problems that can be addressed through the experience of therapy. Mm -hmm. And towards almost all therapeutic processes, is the expectation of the therapist trying to understand the client's perspective on what's happening from from their position. And that becomes a major source of relief. Someone actually understands what's happening with me without judgment. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes without any expectation of change. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's kind of implicit that if you're coming to therapy, there's an expectation that you'll grow and change. But different than financial planning, where we'll typically have goal setting conversations in the beginning and along the way, and therapy, this, there's some different semantics, but we don't set hard goals with timelines and say, okay, we're right. going to work on your depression and we're going to be through your depression in four months <laughs> yeah. or in four weeks or whatever. Yeah. So the unique thing about financial therapy is being able to integrate and understand, well, the sources of a, a depression, anxiety, addiction, how those things may be layering and complicating people's financial lives. Right. Really at Beneath a lot of those issues is a history of some combination of traumas, Mm -hmm. right? So they experienced through their childhood emotional abuse or neglect, physical abuse, parental addiction, parental divorce, parental conflict, you know, environmental catastrophes, war-torn areas. There's a number of different types of traumas. All what trauma ends up doing, though, is taking our sense of safety and security and and moving us into fight or flight. Mm -hmm. And before we go on, can you help? So I've recently, I read a book that related to trauma. So could you just maybe define trauma? Because I'll first to admit that when I first would be exposed to the word trauma, I'd be like, trauma is this big catastrophe event. But then I've been learning that there's like two types of trauma, kind of like big, like big events or kind of, I forget the exact term, but prolonged little drips of trauma. And the more I understood, which again is a very, very small level, is that I think a lot more people have experienced some sort of trauma to their their personal degree. And like for me, yeah. for example, I was told I was shy my entire life. And yeah. at one point I got a new job and it, I was really, I was 25, I was managing franchise holders who were like 50 years old. And I just had to turn on the switch of like, you're not shy. And like, I just turned into this, like what I felt the superhero was like, what the heck? This guy's not shy anymore. But uh, over the last four years, I've been working with a really good coach and that is all there. And sometimes it comes back so quickly that like, oh, I'm not good enough. People won't want to listen to me. And I'm even starting to think that that being told you were shy consistently is, was a form of trauma for me because like when it comes back, it like, it like cripples me. So maybe because I think it's really important to understand this trauma, whether it's being shy or how it relates to our money. But I think and I'm speaking from experience, when you heard that word trauma, you're like, oh, that's not me, not me. So maybe can you Absolutely. explain trauma? And then I don't want to cut you off from how trauma can affect our communication and financial lives. Well, I think you're, so one, I'd love to know, what book is it that you're reading? Uh, unspoken, unspoken Word. Unspoken Word. Okay. I'm not sure if I'm immediately familiar with that, but 
Yeah, I think when Unspoken you start language, thinking, sorry. Do you know the author? I'm putting uh, you on the spot and that's okay if you don't. No, I don't know the author. I'll, I'll send it to you. It, it was part of the uh, conscious program. Okay, great. Yeah. So I think that this is, it is, we have, again, right, these broad global ideas when we hear certain words like debt mm-hmm. and trauma, we have an instant idea of what it is. Most of the time we don't go down deeper into, well, what is debt, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. you and I as kind of planners know, well, there's a lot of different types of debt. Right. And there's a lot of different rules to each type of debt. And based on those rules, then there's different decisions to make. And that's what allows us to be helpful with debt. Mm-hmm. The same is true with trauma, right? We have this general word we call trauma. And most people understand it's some form of adversity. And most of us will go to thinking about war trauma. Mm-hmm. Some of us may be predisposed to thinking about like domestic violence or like if you got, you know, robbed with a gun and shot, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Those are the types of things I think most of us think about. Right. But I think what you're describing is more of an emotional and relational trauma is my care providers and other people in my um, environment growing up came to label me in this particular way that came to define my existence. What they missed beneath that was, well, why is Sean shy, right? We're really good at describing what is going on with people, and we can come up with all kinds of labels for what is happening to people. What we're often failing to do is ask, why is this person this way? Mm-hmm. So I don't think that shyness, I mean, anytime I start to hesitate is because when I make a strong statement, I know that there's going to be a counter argument somewhere. Yeah. So that's my own like, okay, yeah. I'm like, well, yeah, shyness is, can be innate yeah. and connected to introversion and blah, blah, blah. Okay. Yeah. I get that. But there's often a, and I think it's easy to discount or miss environmental factors that can lead to these things like shyness, mm-hmm. right? The way that we are experiencing our home environment in particular can leave us in a place of withdrawal, which gets equated and use the word shy, or can lead us into a place of balance where we can engage and connect and also step back and have our own space right? Which is what I would call regulated Mm -hmm. emotionally. Mm -hmm. I'm able to move back and forth between being connected to my environment and disengaging from my environment. Shyness moves to, I need to be disengaged or withheld or back more of the time. Even when I might want to engage my environment, I'm not, I don't feel to do that for some reason. Mm -hmm. The other side of this is really the aggression and acting outside. And this is really damaging because the kids get labeled as bad or problem kids and they take on this, the rebellious spirit, right? Well, they're not engaging in their environment in a productive way either. And they're getting trapped in this concept of being a bad kid. When oftentimes on either side of the shyness or bad kid continuum is a misattunement of what's really happening for the, the developing child. Right. Boy or girl. And this is where also a lot of times social expectations of boys will be boys or boys are aggressive. Right. And so it, it becomes this positive reinforcing feedback loop. Mm-hmm. And a lot of men get stuck in this space. And then and the boys that get stuck in the shy space are considered wimpy or meek or not enough without ever really understanding well, what's leading them to not be present and confident. And you're sharing so vulnerably about how I was now managing franchisers that were 50 and I had to like swing the pendulum to the other side mm-hmm. and put on a lot of bravado. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I don't, I mean, I didn't intend to share this at all. And I thought of it to talk about money, but it just, and in that moment, which was weird for me is that I felt so in flow. It was awesome. It was great. And like, I always felt that that's why I'm not sure from a personal, like experiential level, if it's innate or environmental, because um, I feel like when given the opportunity to, to, I guess, speak up, it felt great. And it felt like that's what kind of what I was meant to do. And yeah. I thought that would just like, I thought, I actually thought Amy Cuddy, I think it's Amy Cuddy, her TED talk, fake it till you make it. I, I watched that and it was like, perfect. And then I actually, I remember at, during doing presentations, I do quite a bit of presentations now and I love it. I remember thinking yeah. like, who is this guy? I'm going to wake up and I'm going to be back to the other guy. And um, yeah, made some career changes and some things now are reminding me of that. And I'm now working along with my coach, just how do I actually recognize that instead of, cause I think I just pushed it aside. 
And mm-hmm. now how do I, how do I actually recognize that? Cause it, I feel like it is hindering me in some, it's preventing me to speak my voice in some other capacities. And that's, I think true of a lot of things, right? Is what becomes a strength becomes a limitation in another area. And we mm-hmm. can live one way for so long. And then we discover this new side of our personality and it can feel liberating. Mm-hmm. And then we can want to use it all the time. Mm-hmm but then we're over applying this new part of our personality. And so it takes some time to learn how to use this new part of our personality where there's voice and presence and right, commanding. Yeah. And I think that, you know, beneath, if we're, if you're okay using this story of the yeah. franchiser that are 50 years old, how many of them were more wealthy than you? All of them. All of them by multiples. I, yeah. I would have guessed. Yeah. And so that's the underlying money piece that represents, in most cases, power. Mm-hmm. And so you couldn't just go grab, you know, a couple million dollars or have a $10 million franchise business to be their equivalent. No. So you had to do, use your personality right. to try to stand on equal ground with them. Mm-hmm. And so this is that projective psychological is we, whether we like it or not, or want to consciously acknowledge it or not, we are evaluating people's financial status and ourself relative to that. Mm-hmm. If I bring it back around, this is something that I talked about and I alluded to earlier is my wife and I is it's money and money's representations. Mm-hmm. So my wife, I was a firefighter. She was a dentist to be mm-hmm. culturally who has more status. Yeah. <laughs> right. People defer to a dentist far more than they do a firefighter. I, I guess it depends in, unless you were on the calendar for the firefighter calendar. <laughs> then I would have some serious clout, but yeah. <laughs> I can assure you I was, I was in shape, but I was not in that kind of shape. <laughs> I, I read your bio, but the guy walking into the tall, dark, handsome guy in your story, about what your clients feel walking into your office. <laughs> you oh, probably, yeah. I, I actually want to ask you about that because I know you had mentioned to me that right now your wife is, your words, is the breadwinner and you catch yourself even now with the information and the knowledge you have, I, I don't know what the word would be struggle or some, maybe I'll, I'll let you go on from that. Yeah. I think in the mild forms it's struggle and in the more extreme forms, it can touch into shame. Right. And I think that this is my emphasis on trauma and my ability to talk about it now has been long coming. And so I want to try to tie this all together pretty quickly is in becoming a therapist, you're confronted with understanding your internal world and all that's been, that's shaped you to who you are, because if you don't understand that, then it's very hard to sit with people as they're trying to make sense out of themselves. Right. So there's this kind of like, you're always trying to stretch into yourself and better understand who you are and how you've gotten to be how you are. And so inherent in trauma, one of the psychological processes is that we try to block them, block them out right. as a way of protecting us, right? Yeah. Because part of defining trauma is trauma can be an overwhelming psychological experience and you don't have the internal psychological resources or the relational resources to help you make sense out of it. And so you block it out. I see this all the time when I'm in intakes with couples and I'll get a little bit of both of their histories. Then I'll see both of them independently. And the spouse will inevitably tell me about their partner's history and things that happened that their partner will not tell me about because they either not thinking about it. They don't want to talk about it. It feels scary. Anyhow. Okay. So with my wife and I, we, she had the, the doctor in dentistry, I was a firefighter, and my own internalized value system and belief system is that doctors are more valuable than firefighters. Mm-hmm. Now, people could logically argue that different, but that was just my own psychology. That was my own. And as we interacted, I went from spending time with a lot of guys that had high school and associate's degrees to all of her friends who had D's right. and attorney, and were becoming attorneys. Mm-hmm. And it was just psychologically such a different experience and it evoked more of my own insecurity. So what should have been a good thing on the surface, and it is a great thing, exacerbated what underlying insecurities were already there for me. And so trying to work through that has been an ongoing learning journey. And that one of those first steps is just recognizing that it's there. Mm-hmm. And then being able to normalize that this actually happens to other people as well. And then being able to slowly forgive myself for having those feelings and working through my other developmental traumas that are there and the ways that it learned, 
led me to shut down. And so, you know, what you identify maybe as coming up as a shy kid, I identify as coming up as a caretaking kid because my caretaking was a way of being adaptive to my family in broader context. And I got rewarded for that. Well, not understanding that that meant I was also not paying attention to some of my own needs. Right. Because I was so externally focused on taking care of everybody else. Mm -hmm. And so there's all these different moving pieces that were going along as my wife and I are trying to work on our relationship with money, my inability to recognize I had my own financial history that shaped my ideas about money. She had her own history with money and that we both had different, in Klontz's language, financial flashpoints. Right. Yeah. We had different financial experiences through our childhood that left us with different financial anxieties and fears. Mm -hmm. And so because the field of financial therapy is still emerging, it's been a lot of trial and error and learning about how do these concepts work and apply? How do they apply? How do I use counseling? How do I find a counselor that can help me with this particular area of my life? You know, in the field of counseling, we have sex therapists, we have family therapists, we have addictions therapists, we have, you know, eating disorders therapists. And because each of those areas have a lot of their own complexity, we have trauma focused therapists. Mm -hmm. And each of those therapists usually know something about all the other areas, but they're not experts in that domain. And so this is where the field of financial therapy, you know, in business terms, has a gap in the market Mm -hmm. because most therapists don't know about the objective money world. And so they can't ask questions about the structure of your investments, the structure of your cash flow, the way that your business is working and know those common objective financial pain points. And yesterday I was working with a a business owner at the Toronto mechanic shop and it's getting started with his son and, you know, trying to figure out, you know, I'm up to here in debt up, you know, and it kept showing me body was told me there's so much stress. Mm-hmm. And so I had to start asking about objectively what's going on. Mm-hmm. But without my MBA and CFP background, I wouldn't have known how to ask those questions to get clarity on. Well, there's actually really good revenue, but they're not taking enough out. And then they end up with these big tax bills. Mm-hmm. And so the, the structure of the system is not set up well enough yet. And the, where are they in that process? And then moreover, that plays into the marital relationship of she has some sense for how much he makes feels really powerful. Again, the money power thing Mm -hmm. where she stayed home from with the kids, Mm -hmm. but now the kids are grown. And so who am I and what am I doing? And so he's, I know I'll help her start her own business, which on the one hand is helpful, but on another way, it's like conveyed to her, like, I can't do this myself. Right. And so these are the types of complex dynamics that I'm trying to work through with folks as we're trying to deal with their money on the surface, which seems like it should be so darn easy. Yeah. I mean, just in that example you gave, or like on the surface, you think, yeah, I mean, help you out and start this business. But I mean, going back to shame, there could be a lot of shame feeling from that spouse that I can't do this on my own. Right. So if, if, if there's couples out, well, there, there are a lot of couples out there that have money and need to use money, most all couples, what would yeah. you say would be some good steps. And I, I, I come across many, many couples, well, individuals who have issues with money, let alone a couple. What would you say some good first starting points are? Is we've talked about this previous money scripts and flashpoints from our family, some trauma. But for people who are listening who are a couple, what do you think is some good first steps that people can start taking? I think step number one is empathy building, Right. And empathy can be a powerful tool to use with yourself and with your partner. And the way that I define empathy is being able to step into the other person's perspective more fully Mm. with acceptance, without an agenda, without any goals for change, but really just trying to understand. Because what I see most often when I'm starting to get to know my clients and asking about their histories I asked the partner, did you know about this stuff? And they said, oh yeah, I know about it. But what they don't know is what it meant to them. Mm, It's the underlying meaning they've given to these experiences. And that's a big part of empathy. And so becoming more empathic though is it's a first step and yet a lifetime's journey. And so I would encourage people to start, you know, Google searching and YouTube searching empathy and learning 
learning more about it and learning how to use it as a tool to build and foster relationships. And I think it's perfect. A money podcast, but the first thing is talking about empathy and not how to build a diversified portfolio. And I think, Uh, and I read on your site and I'd like to get in line with what you're saying, but you had um, a case scenario. I forget to get people's names, but you talked about addressing the emotional side first, which is exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. It, and this has been a, a huge paradigm shift for me, right? I mean, I was classically trained as a financial planner. Mm-hmm. And so the starting point was, well, let's collect all the financial information. And then I'm going to get it organized for you because I'm the financial planner. We're going to drop it into the software. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you a few questions about, you know, when do you want to retire? What do you want to have at retirement? Do you have any kids that you need college for? What type of college? I'm going to assume that that's not going to evoke any conflict at all for you. Yeah. Uh-huh. Wrong. Yeah. But no, no, I don't want to see any of your conflict about when you're different about retirement age and how much you need and where you want to retire or the fact that you want private school and he wants public school. Mm-hmm. And let's not even mention the fact that there's a lot of people that are blended couples. They're not in their first marriage. Yeah. And that adds a whole nother layer of complexity. Yeah. So that was the, my starting point. But the, the change is really recognizing that, I think you were alluding to this earlier, even if I can find ways to increase your investment rate of return, if I can't get you to engage in your financial plan, it doesn't matter. Right. Right. I can save you 50 basis points by getting you to go to Vanguard. But if you're still relationally miserable and going to divorce in five years, that compound interest isn't worth it. Doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I'm a big fan of saying there's two big risks to your financial life, divorce and dysfunction. And unless you can start rooting through and getting to becoming a relationally healthy person, those things are going to be far bigger risks to your financial health than any market changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, I really, really like that. Uh, of course, divorce, but this dysfunction. And I mean, you see it so often, people with lots of money who maybe they're hoarding money, but they're just miserable. And that brings me, and I know we're coming up to an hour here, but Something that I think what I'm seeking to explore on this whole podcast is how do we like avoid that dysfunction? And I, I'm, I'm using an analogy. I'm a runner. Yeah. Like I, I like running marathons. I'm not the fastest one. I like doing it for many other things, but I want to get better at my marathon time, but I'm totally at ease with my financial or my physical health. So this dysfunction thing, a, a thing that I want to explore is how do we become just at ease with our finances or like make them an ingredient to like our fulfilling, being fulfilled in life and remove, if possible, like remove those traumas around money or not traumas, but like, how do I remove my self-worth from my money? And instead of being waiting till we're tired, I have a lot of retiree clients. Yeah. Instead of waiting till we're 65 to enjoy ourselves, can we not just create a, you know, create a life where we're actually coexisting with our money instead of like, being our money. And I don't know if that's related to dysfunction. I do think, you know, again, these are, can become different definitional and philosophical challenges. Yeah. And I think even as I listen to your aspiration, where you're going to head, I feel my own internal struggle between wait, wait, no, but my identity is linked to money. And yeah. you're wanting to me, I can't have them linked. Yeah. Not, not linked, that's, but coexisting together. Like uh, and a, John Armstrong in his book, how to worry less money really spoke to me when he said it's an ingredient to feeling fulfilled or flourishing. So not right. saying that you can, and I, I'm interested in your perspective, not saying that like to do the f- important fun things in my life, have a kid, go see Bruce Springsteen. I need money to do that. Right. But, but it's just a part of my overall like recipe to how to flourish. Well, and I think that that's so important. So what I was sharing with you is my, still my own internal journey that I'm on. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> It, no, it's perfectly okay because I think this is part of dialogue, right? It is we're having an interaction. You're asking me a question. I was sharing something. There's a little misunderstanding of my intent. So mm-hmm. I'm just saying, okay, wait, no, it's this way. You're staying engaged. Like, oh, wait, okay. I think just the way that we're interacting around this conversation is emblematic of how difficult this is going to be for people. Mm-hmm. We earlier in this talk talked about the retirement age being set at 65. Mm-hmm by the government authority. Mm-hmm. And so part of psychological growth is also being able to adequately challenge authority. And there's this informal authority structure that says, these are the things that we should do with money. 
this is how we should be with money. Yeah. And so there's needing to take on a sense of permission. And this author that you referenced gave me permission to really say, no, I can coexist with my money and allow money to be more of a nutrition to my life. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not the big meal at the end of the race. Yeah. It's, it's the thing that helps me continue to run the race all along. It's, you know, the pot at the end of the rainbow versus, you know, the water that you drink all the whole marathon along. Mm-hmm. And when we allow ourselves to drink from the stream all the way along, we finish the marathon. But can you run a marathon without any water? No. I tried actually my first time. I was like, I'm too tough. And I, I actually, I, I couldn't move for four days. And, <laughs> but no. And this is where I think, you know, I'm going to push out on some of those financial um, public figures that preach a, a very restrictive financial life until you get to a certain financial place. It's financial anorexia. It's dangerous. It's ah, toxic. You know, I, and it, that is a great financial anorexia. I, I'm sort of cut you off, but this is a thing that I've been struggling with. It's like, I like these financial people who are challenging being like, you should save until you be as frugal as you can save until you get this number. And like, they're trying to defy the normal way, but something just didn't feel right to me. So I'm sorry to stop you, but I just need to get that out. But this financial anorexia is the thing I don't like. And I didn't know how to articulate it. Yes. And it's, it is as toxic as the body, body image shaming that many people go through that develop eating disorders. They create a distorted, image of themselves and what it takes. And so they restrict themselves from all nutritional value. So there's a lot of corollaries. And I think that this is like my, my word of warning to many people is your good intentions may have really negative impact. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that many financial public figures have really good intentions. Yeah. What they are not evaluating is the full impact of what they're doing for all people. Are there some people that are successful on these highly restrictive financial budgets? Yes. But the consequences of that are not ever highlighted or talked about. Mm-hmm. But I know they're there because I, I get the people in my office mm-hmm. that have been hurt by those plans. Mm-hmm. I chuckled a little bit when you said good intentions as negative impact. My wife is in the, she's a community health nurse and very much on the kind of macro level view on the health systems but she said uh she yeah. says to me it's not that you're, it's not your intentions sean that matter it's the impact <laughs> so i heard my wife in my like but I, I meant well when i did this she's like oh. right and that, that is the, one of the hardest groups of people to challenge are the well-meaning people mm-hmm. and i want to own my own part that even everything that i've offered today comes from a place of good intention with the mm-hmm. with the expectation of positive impact Mm-hmm. But if anything that anybody has heard today is not helping or leading to a negative impact, please stop. Mm-hmm. Reevaluate. Let's you know reach out to me or reach out to somebody else and check. Mm-hmm. I have my own set of assumptions about how what I'm saying should work out for folks. Mm-hmm. It's as much based in science as I possibly can, and yet knowing that some of it is still just the voice of that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I want to be respectful of your time. We're coming up to, we're at the hour here. A couple things before we go. Do you have any good books? I know sometimes books are hard recommendation because people might not be at a spot to embrace that book, but do you have a good book that you would recommend for either? It could be a couple, individual, but something that just goes in line of what we're talking today. It doesn't necessarily have to be financial related, but just something on the topics that we've been talking about. Yeah, well, I think a book that would be very supportive if you're wanting to work through the emotional side of money in relatively practical ways is the book called Art of Money by Barry Tesler. And I think she's, um, in short, she's trained as a body-based therapist. So very much in the somatic and what happens inside of your body. And that's an area that I'm continuing to learn and grow around so much more. But I think she's also connect it with the pragmatics of needing to engage your finances. So it's not, you know, sometimes you get into these really money mindfulness things, but they get really disconnected from the pragmatics of doing money. Mm-hmm. And so I think it does a nice job of blending, especially at the, the cash flow management level. Right. Okay. Uh, so yeah, and that's I would, great. Cause often I'll see like two camps. One is like the financial planner camp of like, you know, 
do your needs analysis, determine how much you can save and withdraw in retirement and very technical, or you have the individual who's like, I don't need money to be happy. Like I have this aversion to money where I think it sounds like she's got a blend there. The, I like the title even the art of money, but also even talking about like the pragmatics of money, because we can't going back to that separating yourself from money. We can do that, but if we don't know how implement the pragmatics of it, it's going to be hard to do those fulfilling things in life. Well, and this is, you know, I mean, we can have a, a follow-up podcast sometime down the road if you yeah, like, sorry. but I think, I think part of what that my reaction to some of that is what is a healthy relationship with money? That's the real question in my mind is what does it mean to have a healthy relationship with money? And just like, you know, with food, you know, some people are foodies and they really love food and I don't want to judge them for being really into food. Mm-hmm. Just like, I don't want to judge people that are really into money, mm-hmm. but they're, we're all going to have some type of relationship with money. And is that relationship with money helping us to flourish or is it leading us to lose relationship with ourselves or with others? Right. And so we may, may need to play with that level of connection that we feel to money and taking a different position for a little while just to really recognize that. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much. I really, really enjoy having conversations, especially when you uh, have such experience in how this wild mind works and making sense of things that are happening to us. I know you have a course that you have been working on. I, I don't know if it's released yet, but why don't you just share, share uh, some information about your course, where people can find, I know you talked about your website at the start, but maybe... Yeah where they can find a website and what type of couples or individuals would be, might be interested in popping over to your site. Yeah. Well, I think like we've said, really any couple that wants to better understand the yeah. role of financial conflicts and the course is uh, called the family money tree right now available on my website, healthy love and money. And so you can go there and, and be able to get some background information and make a decision about whether you want to buy it or not. Yeah. That's really the best way place to get connected with me at this point. I will include the website and uh, thank you so much. I don't know if you have one last statement or comment you want to make. Life is too short for financial conflict. Oh yeah. I think I'm going to title this podcast that. I like it. Yeah. And if you wouldn't mind sharing your podcast uh, once it goes live, I'll, I'll be happy to, to try to share it out into my community as well. I appreciate that. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. If you're enjoying the content, please leave me a review on iTunes. I'd greatly appreciate it. Well, now it's time for me to get the F out of here. <laughs>